Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me this week on Tia Time. We'll get to the show in just a moment. First, I wanted to say thank you to all of you who have posted a rating on Apple Podcast. Apple Podcast is an app that can be downloaded to your phone or computer. The algorithm it uses allows more artists and art enthusiasts like yourselves to hear about the show. So if you haven't posted a rating yet, do it now. Thank you. On with the show. Welcome to Tia Time with Artists, the weekly podcast where we discuss the methods, challenges, and real-life experiences of living our creative dreams. What kind of creative warrior are you? Musician? Filmmaker? Painter? Choreographer? Poet? Sculptor? Fashionista? Let's talk about it right now. I'm your host, Tia Imani Hanna. Welcome to Tia Time with Artists, and my guest this week is multifaceted violist, dancer, arranger, composer, educator, Leslie DeShazer. Thank you for being with me today on the show. Thank you for having me. We've worked together, I, I think I've substituted for you more times than not. We've only got a chance to work together a, cu- a couple of times recently, which has been really fun, because in Music Noir, which you're one of the originating members of that group. Mm-hmm. And usually I get called in when Leslie is not there so to work on her group, which is fantastic. So I'm glad that I've had that opportunity. And then we recently had the chance to work together with Sister Strings Roots Voice and Drums at the Detroit Jazz Festival last year in, in 2020. Anyhow, that's how we know each other. But I've always been hearing stories from all the different members of the group, how amazing a player, because I've seen you play and I know you playing and just how you've created all these different things from classical style to jazz style, mm-hmm. incorporating African dance and African rhythms and all of these different things. Tell me, how did viola come into your life? Did that come into your life first? Because you play a little violin as well, right? Yeah. Viola happened by mistake because I walked into... The orchestra that I signed up for in sixth grade with the intention to play violin. And that even was like random because I don't ever remember actually wanting to play violin. But then when we got like our form that says what you could pick for your elective, there was like band, choir, orchestra, some other things. And I remember just being like excited when I saw orchestra. And so I walked into the classroom and told the teacher I wanted to play violin. And she's like, we don't have any violins left. But if you want to take an instrument home today, you can play viola. And then basically she was like, if you play viola, you'll get more opportunities because there usually aren't enough violists and giving me all these like reasons why viola would be a a better option. So I was like, okay, that sounds good to me. I want to take an instrument home today. So Mm -hmm. I chose viola that day and and the rest was like naturally, just naturally unfolded because it was something that I gravitated towards right away and then knew from the like that moment when I first played it that I wanted to play mm-hmm. for the rest of my life and be a musician. Yeah. That's impressive. Were, was there other music in the house growing up or musicians in your family? Yes. My mother sang. My mother was like the church singer. She sang, not even just church, but she sang for all the like kind of local stuff, local talent shows. Mm-hmm. She sang for a lot of weddings and funerals and she sang in church. She wasn't really like an instrumentalist in that she could play. She played piano like a, a tiny bit. So we had a piano in the house when I was younger. But my mother mostly sang and mostly in church. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, but there were no other musicians. My siblings did take up band, but none of them, like, really stuck with it. They did the one-year thing, and then they were over it. So, yeah. How many siblings are there? So we have a Brady Bunch situation. There's eight of us. Okay. But we're a blended family. Mm-hmm. So I I have two siblings who are by blood, even though I don't even like to think in those terms. We have a very close family. And yeah, there's eight of us. So there's always a lot, a lot going on in our house. <laughs> a lot of noise. <laughs> I've, I learned to really value quiet time because it was always loud in our house. But my parents were like really cool about letting us choose what we wanted to do. So I never got any pushback when it was time for me to go to college and I wanted to major in music. Some of my peers did, you know. That's good. That, that's rare. It's definitely yeah. rare. So I didn't so even went, know it was a thing. Like, I didn't even know people didn't want their kids to be musicians. Like, it just, <laughs> until I got, you know, in college and I had friends who were like double majoring because their families didn't want them to just have a music degree. Like it, because I think my parents were just thrilled that I, that I was doing something I loved and I got accepted into a good school and I got a scholarship. I think they were just like happy about that. They didn't doubt my decision, which I'm grateful for. Where did you end up going to school? I went to university of Michigan. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like, a that was another one of those things that life gave to me on a plate in a way, because I had went to this summer institution thing and professor Elliot was there. He was directing it. Hmm. And he heard me play. This was like, I think I was probably 15 or 16 at that point. And he loved my playing. He was really impressed. So he went back and told the professor who was doing viola then. And I took some lessons with the professor when I turned 16, just took a few. So by the time I applied for schools, I really didn't apply for many because I knew I was going to go to U of M because I had been in contact and talked with them. Several of the faculty heard me play at that point And so I did my audition and it went well. And then I got offered a, a tuition scholarship. Yeah, I was fortunate to be in the company of a lot of people who believed in me when I was younger and made opportunities easier for me to to attain. Yeah. So were you like pretty self-directed in the sense of, because I would never even thought to contact these teachers or your, was your, or your parents in there saying, call them. Cause you know, when you're a teenager. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. my parents weren't. It was really funny, Taylor. When I look back at some of the stuff I did as a child, as a teenager, cause I have kids of my own and like my audition, I drove myself to my audition at U of M. I don't even think my parents like really knew like what it meant. I was like, I got this audition okay, here are the keys. Like I drove myself and just like <laughs> walked in the school, looked for the, the classroom they said that the audition was going to happen in. And then I just did the audition. It's funny because I had a little fender bender like right before it happened, oh. <laughs> a little frazzled. But a lot of the things that I did, I was a really self-directed kid in general. When I saw something I wanted to do, I would be like, I'm doing that. And then I would just hand my parents like the permission slip. And be like, sign. And so they would sign. There was with such a big family, I think they didn't have the time to just be like micromanaging every little thing we did. Like when I look back on that kind of stuff, now that I'm a parent, I see what it takes to parent. And some kids are really independent. You don't need to be there to direct them as much. Some are, they need a lot more direction. I think I was one of the kids who didn't need as much direction. So yeah, a lot of those things that I did or follow-ups that I did on my own, information that I shared with people I met. Here's my phone number. I'd love to take a lesson or whatever. And yeah, it 
my my private teacher at the time also helped connect me with people too. Okay. Because she was she had finished her PhD at U of M, so she was hooked into that community. And she was good about telling me who I should talk to and putting me in touch with certain people too. She was really key to her and my orchestra teacher, really key what? to helping me. Who was that teacher, do you? Her name was Melissa Gerber at the time. I think her last name is Necht now. And then I had Michael Endress. He was my orchestra teacher. And we had a really funny relationship. It's amazing that he even liked me because I was so obnoxious. I was like that kid in orchestra who was like so bored that I would just do really obnoxious things. And I remember one time he'd just be like, damn it, Leslie. Because <laughs> I was always doing something. Like one time I like learned the violin, the first violin part, all of it a half step higher than it was. And so, like, the whole time they were playing the melody, I was playing the melody, like, a whole half, like, a half step higher than them. So it sounded like... That's <laughs> <was> terrible. <laughs> Bust out playing, like, the flute melody. So I ended up playing cello and bass when I was in orchestra, because that was just one way for me, like, to not be bored. Because the viola parts in those high school and middle school arrangements, they're terrible. Like, you're literally playing. It's like the arranger was like, oh, yeah, the violas, that's right. And then just threw down a few whole notes and mm-hmm. sent it to the press or whatever. But so the parts would be so boring. And I would just be sitting there like bored to death in orchestra. I think he got it, but I, I definitely, I did apologize to him later because we ended up doing some like work together, like gigging together. I played cello for two years because I was so bored with viola. And that was funny because my sister was playing cello at the time too. And she was sitting second chair. There were like six of us and I challenged her and beat her. Because I'm so competitive, I didn't even think anything of it. And then she started crying and everybody in the orchestra was saying, hum. <laughs> I wanted that seat though. That's terrible. For those listening who don't understand how challenges work in orchestra, for the people who lead each section are the section leaders and there's and the first and second chair are the most important chairs in the section. Or at least the yeah, they're the leaders of the section. So you have to have auditions for those chairs. And so when you challenge for the chair, then you have to do like a it's like a face-off. <laughs> One person yeah, yeah, plays yeah. a part and the other person plays a part and then you get judged on who plays it better and whoever plays it better wins the chair. So that's what that challenge is. Anyhow. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is I was so like driven. I was like, I told my sister, like, that's what you get for not practicing. And then I look back, I'm like, man, <laughs> you, you, were- know, you knew I was going to challenge. You knew I was coming for that first chair. Like, and you're in the way you're sitting second. <laughs> Yeah. And then I played bass for a year, also in middle school. I did a year of bass just to keep myself from being bored to, to pieces. Sure. But I loved orchestra, believe it or not. <laughs> I did love it. And I also played in the Detroit Symphony uh, Orchestra Civic Youth Ensemble, which was really great. That was my window into the world of more competitive, more serious players. My defining, maybe not defining, but my kind of breakthrough moment of knowing, okay, now I got to work harder was when I went to Interlochen and I was in eighth grade. And I remember, cause like when you're from your like local area, like you're the best. And cause there's five people to be better than, or I was used to people being like, Oh my God, you're so good. And you think like you don't play off of that energy until you're not the best one anymore. And when I went to Interlochen, I did my audition and got placed last stand lowest orchestra. And I was like, Ooh, yep. Me too. <laughs> Me yeah, too. like, dang, I thought I was somebody. Yep, <laughs> yep, first chair, I was first chair at Cast Tex Orchestra, and I went to Interlochen the first time for a two-week thing through U of M, mm-hmm. and was in the last stand of the lower orchestra. 
<laughs> That's the reality. I was second to last chair or something like that. Yep, that was me. But see, I was I was fortunate because I went to the eight week program. So yep. yeah, I challenged up, and I got into the higher orchestra. Mm-hmm. And then this is always a hilarious story to me. And to this day, I wish I would have done it differently. You had to play, and then everybody had to vote. Yeah, you close your eyes, and everybody would vote. And I played against this guy. And I thought he played better than me. And this would have been for the second chair, highest orchestra at this point. Mm-hmm. I skipped a bunch. I don't even know how I did it, to be honest. Like, I wish I had that same work <laughs> ethic. I don't even know how I did it. But this would have been for, like, second chair, like, first stand highest orchestra at this point. And we closed our eyes, and it was time to vote. And I voted against myself. Wow. Yeah. And the teacher was like, he pulled me aside after. was like, why did you do that? You would have won it. And I was like... I felt like he played better than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now admire my honesty in that moment, but I also was like, what a dumb move was that? Why don't you not vote for yourself? You to this day, I just want to slap myself now. I'm like, okay, you were taking the honesty thing. So, yeah. to say that your character was is solid. Yeah, I think I was so, trying to prove to myself that or something. Cause... <laughs> it was to make up for this thing you do with your sister. Exactly. Karma. <laughs> But it was great for me because I got a chance to meet people from all over the country. There were some international students there, too. I remember meeting a guy. We became friends from the Philippines. And I had a little buddy from India named Ganesh who was so cool. And that gave me a window into the bigger world. Because as a musician, like, when you're just doing stuff locally, you can really become boxed in. Yes. I won't say, I won't talk about the level because that's a whole different can of worms and we can get to that later but i think you don't get enough exposure to the wide world of music and musicians and that experience gave me a glimpse okay this is something that is going to open up a lot of windows for me and i met so many cool people people to this day who i know that i met when i was at interlocking that's fantastic so and my, now my kids are at the age where like my daughter did interlocking virtually last year okay but just to see how these things continue and how these traditions thrive, like how vital they are to young musicians. Yeah, it was cool. It makes I'm so grateful for those opportunities because that's when I had time mm-hmm. to actually practice for eight, 10 hours a day or and not mind it and like it and learn and be the sponge and understand new things. And it's such a, it's such a prime time because I couldn't, I have trouble practicing for an hour straight sometimes. Yeah. Because there's so many other things I have to do. Yeah. So I am so grateful for that time. So that's fantastic that you had that because I mean, you carry that with you. Yeah. And, uh, isn't it isn't it interesting though the timing of how like when you're young you have all this like energy mm-hmm. but then you have this wisdom of older age. Yeah. And those two almost never converge. But if you had the wisdom now and the energy that you had younger like you could have been such a Now we all obviously things happen the way they should but I I just look at some of my students and I look at the youth that's on their side and how people have that saying that youth is wasted on the young or something like yes. that. It yeah. says, but like they can learn so much and they can do so much with so little actual work, but they don't have sometimes the ability to apply a lot of the non-written or the non-said things mm-hmm. because they haven't experienced life in the same way yet. And then by the time we get to that point where we can actually apply those things, our technique's going down the drain, right. you know, because we are not spending the same amount of time and we're older. And sometimes we start to get aches and pains and 
playing is not as as easy as it was when we were younger. For me, I frequently get shoulder pain. When I was younger, I probably played with all kinds of horrible technique and I never hurt. <laughs> now I got to warm up. Now, where did the composition come in for you? So that's a good question. I think writing it down is where it comes in for a lot of us because we have ideas, we make stuff up, but we never document it. And I know I did at least. I would make stuff up, but actually writing it out was different. I think I started writing things. Can you hear my kids in the background? I can. I started writing things when I was probably in my officially writing it down more in my 30s. And then with the band, Michelle was like, we need everyone to write something for our projects. So it forced my, it forced me having a deadline to do something and solidify it. Because I've got stuff in my music files right now that I started writing and never finished, like a lot of stuff like that. But there was no pressing need to finish it. So I just, I just didn't. You get like in a mood and you're like, I'm going to write today. And you sit down and you start writing. And then 15 minutes later, you stand up and you had the good idea. And then you forget it like four days later that you were working on that. Or there have been times where I've had ideas in my sleep. I'll wake up and sing it into my phone and then I'll not go back to it. So I did a lot of that, you know, (laughs) for a long time. Right now, like over the summer, I did some writing because I really, unfortunately, I have not ever done my own project. And this year I was like, I got to do that. So I did some writing. And then with the concerts that I did online, I did perform some of the music I wrote. And now I'm in the process of making time to go in the studio and actually record it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It took me long enough. Now I'm like 75. Right time. It's the right time. When you do it, it's the right time because it's, yeah. it's, it's not ready till it's ready. True. True. So it's all good. Yeah. It's all good. You have the writing sickness. I have memos up the wazoo in my soundcloud it's like you have a new memo oh yeah i forgot about right. that one <laughs> yeah exactly the ideas yeah. come what I, I found is one time somebody asked me like how do you practice when you have kids like how do you find the time to practice mm-hmm. and what i what i found at least is that it isn't that you don't have time to practice it's that you don't always the timing or the timing to be creative isn't always on your side because frequently, like, the best ideas we get come, like, in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. when you're, like, in the shower. They come in, like, sometimes really odd times. And for me, with having children, sometimes you might have this idea and you walk out of the shower, right, put this idea down on your kids. Hey, you forgot to, you know, send in my permission slip for blah, blah, blah. And then you mm-hmm. go do that. And then now the the creates the, that mindset is gone. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, having timing on your side to be able to do it when you feel it. Of course, it's different for everybody. And as we mature, our family obligations and things get bigger. And we just, like you said, we don't have the time to spend on ourselves like we would have 20 years ago. But I think I'm aware too that it's necessary to prioritize it and sometimes even schedule it, even if you don't feel the creativity there to just do it anyway and set aside time. And I haven't done great about that. Like I'll tell myself, okay, I'm going to set aside 15 minutes every day just to write something. It's just 15 minutes. You can do that. And then I just get distracted and I don't do it. But it's, yeah, just that prioritization of creative space. But having children makes you, it forces you more to take the time 
to put it in your life because you know how easy it is for days and weeks and months and even years to go by and, and you look up and you haven't done any of your own work. You've been doing everybody else's work. And so that's one of the blessings that's come out of this pandemic, I think, is that we have time to work on things we want to work on because we're not like mandated to be learning all this music for other people's stuff. So that's nice. Obviously, you're not making any money. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Um, you only need that to live. <laughs> exactly. It only grows on trees. No biggie. <laughs> yeah, no big deal.
Yeah. You definitely have to prioritize. And it is. It's, I don't have kids, but I might as well with all the little projects that are always whispering in my ear. You got to do this. You got to do this. Even just stuff like taking care of your own house. Mm-hmm. It's, there's all of these things that have to be done so that your house doesn't fall apart. Yeah. And, but if you're working and doing things, you can't do those things. And then and then the podcast and then I got to practice. And then there's a song that, that keeps coming back to my head. Oh, I got to write that down. Oh, and, yeah. On a, yeah. Um, project number 27. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's I, I had a I don't know if it was a conver- I can't remember if it was a conversation or it might have just it might have been an interview that I watched one time. And someone had asked Bobby McFerrin how he practices. And he says that he doesn't practice in the sense of every day he does a certain amount of scales or anything like that. But he does just sing every day. Mm-hmm. And even for 15 minutes, he just does something. When, especially when he's on tour, he just does that 15 minutes a day. So that, that 15 minutes that you were talking about is definitely a feasible thing. Yeah. I find the the more that I'm doing this, I feel like we have a whole period of just undoing. The undoing of a lot of convention, a lot of tradition that doesn't necessarily benefit us mm-hmm. as people. And you can take this, you can make this wider than just music. A lot of us spend a lot of time trying to imitate other people and what they did. And the imitation has its place, especially since music is a language. Mm-hmm. But if we spent half of the energy on our own voice that we spend on other people's voices, we'd be innovators and creators more than imitators. True. And I'm starting to look at this thing very different. I still urge my students to spend time. I'm trying to change my language, practice. What does that mean? Okay, you devote time to sit in a particular space. You take out your music, you take out your instrument, and you spend this amount of time. And we even brag about the hours. Oh, five hours. I practice this many hours, that many hours. But real meaningful, mindful attention to your craft is different Mm -hmm. than just practicing. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, how can I motivate students to play their instruments consistently? That's really what I'm trying to get them to do, play consistently, spend some time daily just getting to know the instrument. Mm-hmm. And I think that package is very different than being like practice. You know, right. It has this negative, sometimes it feels negative because it's a lot of stuff you don't want to play. A lot of the stuff kids are practicing, they don't want to play it. They don't want to play etudes. They don't want to play scales and arpeggios. And most of the time, a lot of times they don't even like the repertoire they're playing. And so how do you get them to to work on stuff if they don't like what they're playing. They do it, but they're going through the motions, which so many of us have done over a lot of years. We've spent a whole bunch of time learning stuff we didn't even understand, mm-hmm. let alone, not to say everything has to be fun, you have to like everything, but I think we can get close when you're talking about music because there's so much great music. It just doesn't make sense that we just keep doing like this one kind of boxed-in way of teaching and sharing. So I'm really starting to change my attitude towards a lot of these things just because I think that a lot of the stuff that I've latched on to didn't have a lot of benefits to me developing myself and my voice as a musician. Yeah. When I think of practice, I know one of the things I used to tell my students would be, you really do have to think about it like a meditation. And I came to the idea of it doesn't even matter what the instrument is because you're really, your voice is what's 
you're trying to get your voice to come out in whatever instrument you're playing. So even if, say, for instance, you're going to be a piccolo player and that's all you're ever going to play is the piccolo, but maybe while you're playing it, maybe you're going to think of yourself as a saxophone player. Mm-hmm. And then what changes when you think of yourself as a saxophone player playing the piccolo? Is it going to, are you going to play differently? So it's really not about the instrument, but that, that concept of, because if I think of myself, if I'm scatting a solo and if I think of myself as a bass player, I'm going to sing a lot differently than if I think of myself as a flute player, it's just going to be a different sound that comes out. So it's, it's just a, it's a state of, it's a meditation of being that sound or being uh, the personification of an idea of a sound. I don't know how else to say that, but yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, so the practice is being that music or inhabiting that music and trying to make that music live in some way that is identified as something that comes from you. Right. Like your I voice. The, the overarching theme would be the mindfulness, what you do. I literally had this conversation with a student this morning about how she approaches playing. But when speaking to her, the real issue is that she's very self-doubting. I don't know who's, who or what suggestions made her feel like she wasn't good enough, mm. but she plays very apologetically. There isn't a mindfulness and a passion when she approaches the instrument, but she loves the instrument. That's obvious, but somewhere there's a disconnect. She hasn't been able to bridge that gap between what's inside of her and what comes from her instrument. But yeah, that idea of just envisioning or yourself in a different mental space or place and translating that onto the instrument is not something we spend a lot of time doing because we're always just like, I got to practice, I got to practice. But in that, there's like definitely something spiritual happening and that isn't always easy to tap into. So, yeah. Yeah. I I think it's fun that uh, the longer we play music and the longer we try to understand it, the less we know. (laughs) I like that because you never get bored with it. It's so expansive. And then you also know that you're never going to master it, which keeps the humbleness in there. So you can't ever get cocky anymore. Because, you know, I think when you're younger, you're like, yeah, you can, I'm the top of the line. Yeah. After a certain point, you're like, ah, guess not really, not really. And so it's, and trying to teach that to other people is difficult, I think, because they don't think of it the same way. You might be the next line of teachers that is basically saying, hey, let's think of this as inhabiting the music instead of mastering the music. Yeah. Or replicating, like... I think our approach to educating in general lacks real application. When we look at things like math and English and history, science, the way that most of us learned it is very abstract, very drill and regurgitative, but not applicative. There's a lot of concepts that we basically walk through every day that are math, that are science. There are a lot of things that we live, a lot of things that we do, that if we really understood the history of, we'd do them better or we wouldn't do them at all. But we don't really educate ourselves or our children in a way that sort of shows the cross-disciplinary relationship of all these things. There's connections between all of the disciplines. They don't really exist separate 
from one another, but we learned them separately and we put a lot of value in spitting back for the test. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of value in true understanding of what you're doing. That takes longer. It requires more thought. And I don't know if the patience is there to make that happen, but I think when it comes to teaching music, I'm really trying to help students understand it better and apply it better now and not just go for the, okay, three active scale, do your etude, do your piece. I'm really trying to open up more possibilities to them so they can see how these things apply to them mm-hmm. in their lives and their in their instruments. So, yeah. All that deep thinking going on. So these students must be amazing. They are, like, but for different reasons and in different ways. I really probably teach every student differently. And even classes, like I've walked into some class situations where you can see that these kids have this strength and I play that strength up because that's what they do. Like I've got a group that I teach over here on the east side of Detroit at the Ellington Conservatory and I taught them blues tunes from the beginning. They learn how to play Duke's Place, but we changed the key and they learned pentatonic, the E minor pentatonic, and they learned to improvise like the, the first year they played. And they've done a series of other blues since then. Those kids love that. We still do the classical stuff, but that's not, I didn't go in there. That's what we have to do. My other group in May, at, at Mayberry, we spend more time learning pop tunes and traditional beginning violin tunes. Dance with them more and sing with them more because that's just the vibe that we get in that particular setting. I have students who they love the rigor of a tradition. And so I stick with the things that they thrive on. And I've got some students who need like less structure. So I try to bend to that. And I've got one little student who's eight who is just like all about the blues. And so he spends the majority of his time on that. And we I keep one classical piece in this rep just because I know he's going to want to do auditions and things. But the students, they grow how they're going to grow. I think when, what I've realized is I'm just a vessel. I'm not here to like mold them or make them into anything that I want them to be. And they have to be they have to be ready for whatever it is that that you're showing them. That knowledge is not going to stick unless they're ready for it. And so I just try to be perceptive and meet them where they are and then try and get them to rise above that more on their terms than mine. And that's not always easy cuz I come from a background where that tradition is expected. You do your flesh scales, you do the arpeggios, you do a Kreutzer etude and you do one, you know, challenging piece that is of classical origins. None of my teachers were making me do like blues pattern scales or making me like make up my own songs. (laughs) I make students, there's some students, I have them do that. Like one student instead of making her do scales, I have her pick a pattern and she has to take it through the keys. Um, Because I want her to be able to play fluently in every key. Going in scales up and down, that's good, but it's not really doing anything super useful for her. Mm-hmm. In her current life, what she needs as a violinist, mm-hmm. the other exercise is more useful. And the honest to God truth is she probably doesn't practice more than 45 minutes a day. Sure. For her, going through the patterns in different keys is a better use of her time than going through flesh. Because she's probably not going to be a professional musician. But she'll know her keys. Yeah. And she'll be able to play if she wants to learn a song off the radio or off of Spotify. And it's in the key of F sharp. She'll be able to figure it out because she's fluent in F sharp. She won't she be limited. Hear it. Yeah. There's no song on Spotify that goes up three octaves. No, no. <laughs> you know, it's a practical application of what most people really do with their instrumental learning. Most people don't really do that. Most people want to be able to play songs they like. Mm-hmm. That's it. 
that's what most people want to do. And they're developing audience because they have ears for the music. And they'll be looking for music that does that because their ear is developed beyond what the average person is developed. Because that's one of the things that I lament some of the loss of some of the music in the schools because the kids aren't developing their ear. So they're not listening for what I consider to be good music because their ear is so limited, they can't hear it. Yeah, that's true. It it affects us on so many levels. And we say, we talk about the financial times right now and musicians aren't making any money, but we aren't developing our audience either. And that's part of, you've got to start young and develop those ears. Once their ears are open, then they hear stuff. They're like, oh, that's really cool. I want to do that. Or maybe I can start a band. I'm 23. I can start playing guitar now. That's true. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or hire somebody who plays already and I can do this thing and we'll have this new sound because they hear things. But right. anyhow, it's part of the mandate too, I think, to as teachers to help develop that audience ear. And I think personally, when I look at some of this stuff, I the stuff I do is so out there anyway. Um, but it's it's going to be like, some people are going to love it. Some people are going to be like, eh, and that's fine. But that's going to be that way for every kind of music. But what I try to do is I try to create at least a melody and a harmony that's going to be nice, a nice pocket. And it might sound like there's nothing going on because it's a just a general melody, but there's always something underneath going like, really deep so if you can hear it's there yeah you can't hear you won't notice it and you just hear the melody and that but the melody is nice so that's kind of my take on it just i want it to have these layers and i think that's how it hits everybody that yeah. different people feel the different parts of it and they don't realize anyway rabbit hole <laughs> that's okay as <laughs> i was a musician started talking about their music <laughs> we, go, we go down fast <laughs> I used to have a friend who was the only musician in our group, the only non-musician in our group of friends. And he would just be like, cool, until we started talking about music. He's I need to leave. Musicians, we're, we're tight. We stick together. And we usually have a lot of friends who are musicians because most people just can't really vibe with us too hard because we don't <laughs> talk about normal subjects. It's, have you ever listened to Carlos Santana speak about anything? I have not listened to him speak. Every now and then he'll have an interview or something and... He goes out. He goes out. Yeah, you really do. Because you're just like, okay. <laughs> so I get it. I feel like a non-musician when I'm listening to Carlos. Wow, that's funny. I'm <laughs> no. Yeah. So Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. Yeah, listen to Wayne. Wayne yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but it's fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I mean, you get to, you learn to appreciate those differences about everybody. I think that's one of the, the great things about gaining age and maturity. You have, I think most people, those who are interested in growth, they really do broaden their ability to like take in various perspectives and various personalities. Things were very much cut and dry for me when I was young. Mm -hmm. But now with some life experience, I appreciate those personalities that when I was younger, I'm like, oh, they're just weird. What I think what you appreciate about those people is that they're unafraid to be who they are. And no matter how much pushback they get they stay strong and who they believe they they should be that takes a special kind of person because most people don't there's a lot of um jumping on bandwagons in our society 
a lot of people just do what everybody else does. And that's true. And you just wonder too, what I always wonder is why are they so angry about it? It's well, like- I think it's because it, they know that they should do different more. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like today um, I saw a, a Facebook status of a colleague of mine about anti-vaxxers, you should walk a mile in their shoes. And it was a joke. And they were like clown shoes. And I'm like, first of all, that's a suspect to the profession because being a clown is like for real, like a serious profession. Like those guys, right. they're trying to do that. But the other thing is that where is this low tolerance coming from that someone chooses to do something different? Mm-hmm. Um, I think in my experience, like there are a lot of choices I made young that offended people, but it was not it had nothing to do with them. And that made me learn a lesson very early on. So like I became vegetarian when I was 15. I was vegetarian for 16 years. I, when I had children, I had one of my kids at home. I delayed vaccinations. I breastfed for what most people think is way too long. And I homeschooled my kids. And what I noticed in all of that, and, and of course I chose to be a professional violist. Yeah. I'm bucking all kinds of status quo here and I lift weights so I got muscles. A lot of people don't like that for mm-hmm. a woman. But I, what I see in all that is that when you go against the grain, people take it as a personal offense because they feel bad that they don't have the courage to be different. Mm. And that's why they project onto you. It's like moms, for example, women are always measuring themselves as mothers. There's so much comparing. It's ugly. When you have a small child, people sit around and talk about how their child hit the milestones at three months. And, the, and so when one parent says, well, I feed my kid gluten-free and they've learned all their alphabet and they're like one, then everybody starts going, well, learning alphabet's not that important. Gluten-free is a myth. <laughs> they get offended. My kid's at home. That's not safe. And da-da-da. I'm like, pregnancy is not an illness. Like you don't really need to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. People have babies at home all over the world. But what they took from that was that I was saying that they weren't a good mother because I did it this way. Mm-hmm. And that's a personal, that's an issue of feeling inadequate. Mm-hmm. Something inside of you is telling you that you are not making choices from a genuine place. You're just doing what everybody else is doing. And when someone does something that everyone else is not doing, you want to offend, you want to defend everybody else because you don't have the courage to step out on some things that maybe you felt like you should step out on. We live in a society where assimilation is extremely important. And I think for humans, there's a need to assimilate in some, in some situations. Like we need that unity. We need that oneness. But a lot of the things that we assimilate on don't have anything to do with being a better human. It's really just a personal choice. If you choose to not take Tylenol when you have a headache and you take turmeric instead, doesn't mean you're saying everyone who takes Tylenol is stupid. No. But unfortunately, because of this kind of like, what is the word, like robotic way that we've chosen to live, we just get jolted when somebody's different. And it's unfortunate because that carries into the arts where people should be encouraged to be different. That's that's what art is. It's like, isn't it? I don't know. Some famous artist said something like that if somebody's not basically giving you pushback then you're not making art yeah because yeah. it's gonna if you're doing true art it's gonna somebody's gonna either lo- there's gonna be a love it or hate it and, and then people in the middle who go meh yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah I mean, you're pushing the parameters yeah you're, you're taking that box and you're making it bigger or you're just like taking the corners off of it you're, you're doing something different and yeah i don't know i People think that musicians are creative, and I've had to tell people frequently, you'd be surprised. You have the same kind of people in music that you have in corporate America. 
Oh, yeah. You've got the legalistic. You've got the purist. You've got the people who want everyone to be the same. Then you've got the outliers. But most musicians are not outliers. No. We're no. not taught to be that way. But that's not. <laughs> definitely not string players. <laughs> we are like the safest in the group. Yep. <laughs> string players, French horn players, O players. Who yeah. else in that, that panda group? You cannot break out of that group. Yeah, in a row. Yeah. We are very much, and there's a need for that because when you're playing music with a bunch of people, mm-hmm. you have to learn to blend. You have to learn to move with. You have to learn to be sensitive to because it's a group. But outside of the group, a lot of us don't push any boundaries. We just kind of, oh, I'll just go home until my next group thing. And we want to be safe. I get that too because there is that fear as musicians like, where is the next paycheck going to come from? You know, I've, I had a lot of jobs. There's no fear of that now. There is no next paycheck. <laughs> not funny, Leslie. Not funny. Well, what else can you do but laugh? I, I did a panel yesterday, and and one of the questions was like, what have you lost during this pandemic? And I was like, income. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of it. And then the question was, when did you realize? Like, when did it like kind of dawn on you? Like, what really was going on? It's funny because, like you said, like with the humor thing, I think a lot of us just, for me at least, I pushed it to the back of my head. I tried very hard to not think about how much money I've, I had lost. I started gardening. I'd always wanted to do a garden. And then this year I'm home. So I just started planting seeds, like literally just like planting stuff all over my yard. I got some garden boxes and I just kept myself busy with that. And I did practice quite a bit. I spent a lot of time playing. I did some like porch concerts and stuff where I could. Mm-hmm. But October, it hit me like how grim this was because October is usually when the orchestral seasons are back in full swing. Teaching is back in full swing. Like you're already getting your plans for the winter and sometimes even for the spring and summer for the following year. And I think I went through like a couple of weeks of just feeling really depressed in October. Cause it was like, I'm not going to work for a long time. And I've been doing Zoom teaching, but that within itself is a beast. Like it's taken me some time to accept it because it's not the same. But I think it really hit me hard in October when I started to like really see like how much work I haven't been able to do and how much work I'm not going to be able to do. And then you look at the vaccine rollout and how things are coming down and all the politics. I don't know that we'll be anywhere ready for concert halls to be filled again. Even in this year, it's sad and hard to come to terms with. But with this like more aggressive strand of the virus now out and so much up in the air about what this vaccine can actually do in terms of preventing the spread of the disease, there's a good chance we won't see a concert hall filled again until 2022. If we're lucky. Yeah, yeah. The summer might yield some things because we can be outside, but I also think to event planners and organizers are not willing to take the liability of people working under their watch and getting sick. So yeah, it's for musicians, it's a hard time. I shouldn't just say musicians, stage crew, front and back of house people, administrators, big organizations that had to furlough a lot of people. And then you've got the flip side of the people who are in the medical community. They've been working like crazy since last March. They haven't had a break, but it does... Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah we you guys are like the gold of the world right now. We, we haven't had a break. We haven't had a break. At Christmas time, everything gets worse. It's been like Christmas time since February last year. Wow. And we went through Christmas again and it hasn't stopped. We haven't let up. Yeah. So we just haven't had a break. Everybody's exhausted. 
I can imagine like what I frequently have a good self check because as difficult as it is to be in this position of not thriving and working like I usually do, I've been shielded from the exposure that a lot of people are in every single day. Like I can choose if I want to leave my house or not. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people in other professions who can't choose that. Like they have to work. And the demands like for delivery services are huge. Medical professionals, it's huge. Musicians, I think the thing that we'll have to see how this all pans out is how it helped affected people's mental health. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people are taking a really taking it very hard and mentally their health is really declining because they're not doing what they've been doing. So many of us for decades at this point. And the thought of having to give that up. I think I've, I've known a few musicians who've gotten real estate licenses. They're starting mm-hmm. to do other things, but some of us are starting to think, what else could I do? If I can't work, what can I do in the meantime? What, you know, what job will hire me? You look at somebody who's been like, for me, I've taught, but like other musicians, some of them haven't taught. They've literally just performed for the last 25 or 30 years mm-hmm. and haven't developed any other skills. So the thought of now I may have to get a job that is minimum wage, and then you're competing. Like a lot of minimum wage jobs are not going to hire somebody with no experience or who's over-experienced for the job mm-hmm. or who clearly doesn't want to keep this job. You know what I mean? If you've been playing music your whole life and you go apply at Starbucks, they're like, eh, you're not going to stay. They might give it to somebody else. So it's pretty it's pretty grim for a lot of people. But like for us, and in terms of our household, I feel like we're very blessed. We haven't had to give up any huge things in our lives that will create hardship mm-hmm. in our household. It it doesn't feel good to not be playing out and having time with other musicians. It doesn't feel good for my kids to have to sit in the house all the time. But I am grateful that we have the luxury to sit in the house all the time in this time because it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> To leave your house and be in certain situations because we don't know what's really going to happen if you get sick. So I'm grateful, even though it's been difficult. I'm grateful that I have all that I have. And I'm glad, I'm grateful that people still want to learn because I can always be teaching. Yeah, so, great. Yeah. So you did a living room concert recently? Yeah, I've done, I've done several actually. So I did, let me think. I did one, my first one was in April last year. I did one in May. Then I did an outdoor, I did three outdoor neighborhood concerts and two of them I streamed while playing for my neighborhood. Then I just did another a streaming concert back in December 20th. I did that one I did live from the congregation. I didn't do it from my home. And yeah, so I've done, I guess that's five, five live streams. Then I've done two concerts, one through River Raisin Ragtime, the other one through folk river folk arts organization mm-hmm. solo concerts that were also live streamed. So I've done seven solo live stream. My kids did play on some of them solo live stream concerts during this pandemic. And that's been good. What I've learned about myself in this process is I need to play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I can't just be sitting here like not performing. I need to perform. I need to interact with people, but also it's been financially like good too, because people want to hear music And they can't go to concert halls right now. So if you're offering something they want to hear, they're willing to pay for it. So that's been helpful too. 
it's also forced me to get outside of the waiting for the gig mentality. And that's part of the reason why I'm wanting, you know, to record and do my own project. Moving forward, I have something I can say, this is my project. This is what I, this is what I do. It's kind of my sound. So it's, I've done, yeah, the, the concerts, the streaming concerts have been fun. They've been awkward. It's really <laughs> awkward to play in your living room. <laughs> like the first yeah. concert, hilarious. Like I practiced and practiced for that concert. And then I made a rookie mistake. I changed my first piece like a week before the concert. So I was doing a Bach company um, movement of one of the suites. And I just wasn't feeling it. Like I was doing the second movement of the D minor suite and I changed it like the week before, but I played this one. It's the Courant from the C major. I played it a bunch of times. So I'm like, not stressed. I'm playing it at home. And there's this one spot that I'm like struggling to play smoothly, but I'm like, okay, I'm just going to make sure that I don't go too fast, blah, blah, blah. So I get my lights and my, my laptop, everything set up, got my interface ready. Okay. <sighs> Deep breath. Time to press stream. And when I press stream, when I tell you, I have never felt those nerves in my life. Like, my whole body got hot. <laughs> my hands started sweating. And I'm just sitting there and I'm looking like, because you don't know who's watching. Right. You can kind of see that there's, you can see how many people are watching. I did it on Crowdcast. You can see how many people are watching, but no comments have come in yet. And so I'm in my living room and I'm thinking, okay, I'm in my living room. No big deal. This is what I do all the time. I play in my living room. But <laughs> when that stream started, I lost my bearings. I was just like, Wait, what am I doing? Wait. So I started playing the Bach. And at one point on that one spot, I stumbled and I stopped. Wow. And then I was just like, I put my instrument down and I was like, that was not supposed to happen. Those words came out of my mouth. Those words were not, that was not supposed to happen. And it was just like awkward silence. And I was like, I'm sorry, you guys. I'm I'm so nervous. I didn't expect to be nervous. Bear with me. You know, I'm like apologizing. The comments start coming in. No, it's fine. It's great. I'm just like, at that moment, I just wanted to shut down the computer and pretend like my internet failed. <laughs> but I persevered. The nice thing was that my kids were on the next tune. So I could focus on them, like get them in place. And okay, here's your part. Here's your part. That distracted me from the sheer like mortification <laughs> In the moment that I felt that I made such a horrible mistake. And and the rest of the concert was great. It went well. But that first concert, man, it was rough. <laughs> but I learned a good lesson. I learned a good lesson from that. And that was like, okay, don't take it for granted that you won't get nervous because you're in your house. But then also, too, that opening piece, you need to like... So what I did was the last concert, the first piece I did was one of the Telemann Fantasias. It's an unaccompanied piece acoustic piece. And I made myself practice that piece every day with no, no warm up for about nine days before the concert happened. No warm up. Because what you find is when you're streaming your own concerts, you got to be in charge of your sound, the yes. lights, the stream. There's a very good chance that when you press go, you have not had a chance to warm up. And then things happen. Like the internet is sometimes unpredictable. So I practiced that piece with no warm up for nine days. Every day, I just got up, picked the instrument up and started playing it. And I was so glad I did that because on the day of the concert, I go to stream, no sound. And so you can see me on the video, like the crowd cast video, I have the mask on and my eyes are just like, I'm like on the computer, like trying to figure it out, like looking like, I look so scared and worried. People were like, smile, relax in the comments. And I'm just like, 
touching stuff and tapping stuff and clicking stuff, trying to get it to work. And then finally, by some miracle, it works. Don't know what happened. Right. And so I just, okay, let me play this piece now. And I played the piece and I pretty much nailed it. I was so glad that I had forced myself to practice that piece with no warm up for those nine days because that was the only thing that saved me from not completely panicking and sweating all over my viola and not being able to play. I have this big hair and I'm getting hot and I'm like, I want to put my hair up. I gotta... <laughs> you learn lessons. Like, you next do. concert, I'm going to make sure. I tried to do a sound check, but I was waiting on musicians who were a little late. But now I know even just sound check without them, just to make sure you have sound. Mm-hmm. But that had never happened before. I've done all these live streams. I've never not had sound. I still don't know exactly what happened, to be honest. But... Life went on and people enjoyed the concert. I think the nice thing about right now, everybody's more forgiving because they understand that we're all trying to learn new things and work within things that we're not accustomed to. So everybody was cool about it. Nobody asked for their money back.
it is that right now that we've all transitioned from the 20th century into 21st century all at the same time. Yeah. This has never happened before and it'll probably happen again the next time there's a big leap. Yeah. From one technology to another, but it's it's never happened before in the history of man as far as we know. Yeah. It's never happened before. So that's it's like the cavemen and all of a sudden there's a wheel. Oh, shoot. Everybody has a wheel. Let's get a wheel. <laughs> oh, we need four of them? Okay. <laughs> the panel I did yesterday, they asked the question, like, what should musicians do to increase their resilience? And everyone had all these great mouses. Learn some technology. Yeah. Because if you don't, you're going to be behind. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, like, all these, with all this stuff being canceled, more musicians are going to have to operate completely from home, recording videos teaching with certain technical aspects, learning even something as simple as Zoom. Like you need to learn some technology as much as you might you might naturally resist it because technology is a beast. But yeah. And that's the way we're moving right now. Thank you for those words of wisdom because that's definitely needed right now. <laughs> so, so where online can people find you? I actually am working on a website with my brother, which would just be lessydeshazer.com. So we're in the process of working on that. But all of my shows that I've done are on Crowdcast and you can replay them and watch okay. them again. So if you just go to crowdcast.com and search my name, you'll be able to find all of the shows and you can watch them. And then, of course, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. We're a little bit out of time right now, but the next time I'll have you on again and we'll talk about the dancing. Because <laughs> we oh, yeah. talk about that rabbit right, hole right, and it right. was all over. <laughs> But thank you again. You're welcome. Thanks, Tia. Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artist. Make sure to visit our website, tiaviolin.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate your comments and will mind them to bring you more amazing episodes. I would like to thank this inaugural season sponsors, the folks at Jazz Lines of Ben Michigan or JAM. Michigan Art Share, a program of Michigan State University Extension, is a partner in supporting the Tia Time podcast and Sham Bones Music. Without their support, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much. If you would also like to contribute to the show, you can find us on Patreon.com. If you want to continue the conversation about topics discussed in the show or start new ones with like-minded people, join us at the Tia Time Lounge on Facebook. Thank you for listening. See you next week at Tia Time Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artists. Make sure to visit our website at tiaviolin.com where you can subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts to expand the reach of the show. We really appreciate that help. And we'd also like to say thank you so very much to our sponsors, Michigan ArtShare, a program of Michigan State University Extension, and Cold Plunge Records. And also all of our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. We'll see you next week at Tea Time.